Please pray with me. Yours, O oh Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O oh Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Oh, Father, I pray that you will indeed rule and reign over this lecture. Apart from you, I can do nothing. So, Lord, please empty me of myself and fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit. Speak through your servant, O oh God, for the good of your people and for the praise of your awesome glory. This I pray in the name above all names. Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Have you ever heard someone say, Soli Deo Gloria? Do you know what that means? To God alone, the glory. But what does that mean? Have you ever caught a glimpse of God's glory? The full beauty of God's glory is cloaked on this earth. But he gives us glimpses of it, revealed in his creation, in his people, and in his Savior, Jesus Christ, who is most clearly seen in his word, the Bible. Now, our world today, it often appears to sparkle with glory. It is a largely man-made structure of man-made beauty like art, music, literature, architecture, and all that is easy to experience with our physical senses. But if you and I pulled the curtain back and we saw all of this through spiritual eyes, we would see that even the greatest human achievements are terribly marred by the darkness of evil and the fruit of human sin. Death, disease, and destruction abound and often are far too close for comfort. They serve as very grim reminders of the darkness of the kingdom of this world. There is, however, a greater and better kingdom for the people of God. In Revelation chapter 4, God pulls back the curtain to reveal the throne room of the true King of Kings. And the Apostle John sees glory. He gazed at the matchless, magnificent God on his throne, and words almost fail him. John does the best he can to describe God's supernatural splendor, a presence like a stunning, blinding light. John saw colors, pure, flashing, jewel-like colors, like the blazing radiance cast off of a heavenly prism a rainbow-like cascading of colors that reflected the majesty of God's Shekinah glory. There is nothing on this earth like God. John was given a heart-stopping, face-planting, jaw-dropping peek at the greater and better king seated on the throne of a greater and better kingdom that is reserved for the people of God. The king's beauty, holiness, and power, it is perfect and eternal. It is glorious. His kingdom is beautiful, holy, perfect, and eternal. Glorious. 
when compared to the kingdom of King Ahasuerus of Persia. The contrast is stark. His kingdom, like all earthly kingdoms, is but a cheap imitation of God's mind-blowing kingdom. King Ahasuerus is a usurper a glory grabber who ruled and reigned over a widespread, wealthy, and very worldly kingdom. It pales in comparison to the kingdom of God, where God alone rules and reigns as the true king of kings. I'm going to repeat that last part. God alone rules and reigns as the true king of kings. That is the truth that we're going to explore as we look at Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. We see that in two divisions, widespread kingdom and wealthy kingdom. The first division is widespread kingdom. Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Please open your Bible so that you can follow along with me. In verses 1 and 2, it says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Verse 1 begins with the words, Now in the days of. This is a common opening phrase used to link current events or stories with previous events or stories. The author does this to indicate that he is in fact writing something historical. Ahasuerus is the Hebrew spelling of the name of an historical man known by his Greek name, Xerxes I. He is the son of Darius I, who reigned from 522 to 486 BC and the grandson of Cyrus, who reigned from 550 to 530 BC. Greek historian Herodotus tells us that Xerxes was famous in the secular world for two things, battles and buildings. Verse 1 also tells us that King Ahasuerus reigned over a very vast kingdom. His widespread kingdom covered 127 provinces that spread from India to Ethiopia. At this time in history, India referred to the land of the Indus River, which is modern-day Pakistan. It was conquered by Darius I. Ethiopia referred to a large territory south of the first cataract of the Nile, and it included Egypt, Sudan, and parts of Ethiopia. The Persian Empire covered most of the ancient Near East. This was basically the known world and the greatest empire ever known at that time. One commentator notes that King Ahasuerus was the supreme ruler of the world's superpower of the day. His kingdom included many ethnic groups and nationalities. The Persians allowed these groups local autonomy with regional administrators called satraps and many lesser officials who were each given charge over several provinces. Verse 2 tells us that the king sat on his royal throne in Susa. 
called Sushan in Hebrew, Susa was an ancient city. It was mentioned in early Sumerian documents dated 3000 BC. It was the name of both the capital city and the royal fortress that occupied a separate part of the city that was the eastern capital of the Persian Empire. This city was expanded and beautified by Darius I. Its climate was so hot that temperatures regularly skyrocketed, skyrocketed into the hundreds. So the Persian kings would use it primarily as a winter residence. This winter palace is the one referred to by Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 1. King Darius started building the palace in Susa and Ahasuerus finished it. An extravagant feast was a perfect opportunity to show off this new palace. Verse 3 says that this feast was held in the third year of King Ahasuerus, placing these events in 483 BC. This is the first, but certainly not the last mention of a feast in Esther. Feasts will play a prominent role in the book of Esther. At this prolonged feast, the king plied the princes and rulers of his empire with the best of food and wine in order to win their support for his forthcoming military campaign. The timing of this feast tells us that it was likely held for the king to gather his allies and plan a military campaign against Greece. Again, Herodotus referred to this meeting and said that it took Ahasuerus four years to prepare for his Greek campaign. Two years later, in 481 BC, King Ahasuerus took about 200,000 soldiers and hundreds of ships to Greece to avenge his father Darius' loss at the Battle of Marathon. However, he suffered a twofold defeat. The Greeks destroyed his navy in the Battle of Salamis, and his army lost at the Battle of Plataea and Mycalea. This was a decisive turning point in history as the Persian Empire was turned back from its conquest of the Greeks. Verse 3 continues, The army of Persia and Madai and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. The Persians and the Medes are always named together as two kindred races. Cyrus was the first king of the powerful combined Madai Persian Empire. In the book of Daniel, the name Madai comes before Persia because Cyprus was king of Madai before he became king of Babylon and Persia. By this time recorded in Esther, Persia was the more powerful of the two nations and the order of the names had switched to Persia Madai. The army of this immensely powerful nation, along with the nobles and governors of 127 provinces, were gathered in Susa at the sparkling new palace of their king. 
and verse 4, he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. The king's feast was designed to glorify his greatness as king and show off his widespread kingdom, power, and wealth for 180 days. That's six months. But that is nothing compared to the feast that the true king of kings will one day host. His feast will display his infinitely greater glory, splendor, and greatness. The marriage feast of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, will be the grandest display of Christ's magnificent benevolence and generosity. King Ahasuerus cannot in any way be compared to the almighty, gracious, and merciful God who alone rules and reigns as the true King of Kings. Ahasuerus was an arrogant, narcissistic tyrant of a king. He is the usurper to the king of kings, an imposter, a king enslaved to his own fleshly desires. He had no real glory. One historian says that this is the king who ordered a bridge to be built over the Hellespont. And when the bridge was destroyed by a tempest, he was so blindly enraged that he commanded 300 strokes of the scourge to be inflicted on the sea and then had the unhappy builders of the bridge beheaded. This is the king who, upon being offered a large sum of money by Pythias the Lydian toward the expenses of a military expedition, was so enraptured at such loyalty that he returned the money along with a handsome gift. And then, when this same man asked the king to spare just one of his sons from the expedition as the sole support in his declining years, he furiously ordered the son to be cut into two pieces and the army to march between them. This is the king who drowned the humiliation of his inglorious defeat in a plunge of sensuality. This is the king who had gigantic notions and an overbearing temper. Herodotus tells us that among the myriads gathered for the expedition against Greece, Ahasuerus was the fairest in personal beauty and stately bearing. But morally, he was a mixture of passionate extremes. This is the king of the far-reaching Persian Empire. Powerful, yet very human and deeply flawed. He is occasionally wise and principled, but most often an arbitrary, tyrannical, brutal, despot consumed by his own greatness. He demands everyone else be consumed by it as well. He is a worldly king who does not realize that he is in fact under the rule and reign of a far greater king, the king of kings. God alone rules and reigns as the true king of kings. 
He will use this self-absorbed, narcissistic, pagan king to accomplish his sovereign plan of preserving and eventually redeeming his people. God rules and he reigns right now over all the kingdoms of the earth. He is and has always been in sovereign control of all creation because his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. This means that it reaches from eternity past into eternity future, enduring from generation to generation. That is a widespread kingdom. Daniel chapter 4 verse 17 says that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. In other words, even the worst and lowliest human ruler is under God's sovereign control. King Ahasuerus, like every other worldly king, was under God's sovereign control. The truth is, is that God alone is king over all the kingdoms of the earth. Who or what rules and reigns over your life? Which kingdom holds your heart's allegiance? An earthly kingdom? The kingdom of self? Or the kingdom of God? Believers are called to live as kingdom people, crying out, Solideo Gloria, and embracing the rule and reign of the sovereign King of Kings. This means that you and I are called to submit to God's commands and walk in obedience to his will and his ways as we await the full consummation of his glorious kingdom at the return of Jesus Christ. When we do, we will see and understand that our heavenly king, he is good and he is glorious. His commands are for our good and his glory. His plans for us are good and for his glory. And the wealth and the glory of his present and eternal kingdom is unmatched by any kingdom of the earth, even the wealthy kingdom of King Ahasuerus. Our second division is wealthy kingdom. Esther chapter 1 verses 5 through 9. Verse 5, and when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So after 180 days of feasting, all the people, from the greatest to the smallest, the richest to the poorest, who worked and served in the fortified upper city of Susa, were invited to the palace for a seven-day feast. One commentator says that after the six-month feast, the king gave another special party. This party was for the local people, and it lasted for a week. Now, maybe the king decided to reward the locals with their own feast after their incredibly hard work during the six-month feast. Put yourself in the shoes of the average peasant in Susa. 
Someone had to grind the grain for the bread, slaughter the animals for meat, stomp the grapes for wine, and crush the olives for oil. Someone had to set the tables, clear the dishes, wash the linens, make the beds. The king must have been pleased with their work. Or he was still showing off and generating power and support for his war. In verse 9, we read that the queen also gave a special feast for the women. All these feasts were designed to show that the king ruled and reigned over a very wealthy kingdom. For an ancient king, the more lavish his hospitality, the greater his claim to supremacy. Verses 6 and 7 confirm his obscene wealth. It says there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. The king's palace was magnificently opulent. His feast, it was lavish and bountiful. White and violet or purple were the royal colors of Persia. I like to think that it's just like the purple and gold that are the royal colors of LSU. These hangings were not artwork on the wall. In a hot and windy climate, they served as shade canopies. The couches were made of silver and gold. Hopefully, they had a cushion or two as well. Precious stones created a mosaic pavement upon which royal feet walked, and drinking cups were made of gold, each one uniquely different, a work of art. Laborers who barely earned enough to live on produce, produce these intricate works of art. Archaeology confirms the wealth of the Persian court. Many of these gold drinking cups were found when the Greeks overran the Persians many years later. Truly, life at the king's court was extravagant. King Ahasuerus was wealthy indeed, but his wealth? It pales in comparison to the wealth of the king of kings. God alone rules and reigns over all creation. He is Jehovah Elohim, the mighty creator God. He created the gold and silver and marble and precious stones used by earthly kings. He created the hands that fashioned these materials into works of art. He created King Ahasuerus. Everything in heaven and on earth belongs to the king of kings. Yet the earthly king Ahasuerus ruled and reigned with no regard for the true king of kings. He gloried in his own godness. In verse 8 we read, Drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace, to do as each man desired. The phrase, there is no compulsion, it's ambiguous 
It could mean one of three things. It could mean that no one could drink the king's wine, but an exception was made for this event. Or that all guests could drink as much as they wanted with no restrictions. Or that usually all guests only drank when the king drank, but on this occasion, that rule was not in effect. In any case, King Ahasuerus had to issue an edict for his guests to join in the festivities of his own feast. He demanded that his people fear him and obey him. Theologian David Strain comments, saying, it's actually hard not to smirk at the micromanaging megalomania of the king that needs to legislate for how people drink at his party, which is exactly what the author is aiming at. Ahasuerus wants us to bow before him in awe and reverence. He wants to be adored by his subjects, feared by his enemies, obeyed by everyone. He wants total control. Translation, King Ahasuerus wants to be God. But God alone rules and reigns as the true King of Kings. Ahasuerus will never have enough and he will never be enough. He rules as a tyrant, controlling every aspect of his people's existence for his own good and for his own glory. The opposite is true of the King of Kings. God's perfect and extravagant love motivates his every command. The beauty and perfection of his character and the desires of his heart are exceedingly good. His commands are always for our good and his glory. And he gives us the desire and the power to obey him through the indwelling Holy Spirit. He does not demand that we drink. He freely gives us living water to drink. And when we drink of this water, we will never ever thirst again. Such gifts would never come from the likes of an earthly king. In verse 9, we are introduced to Ahasuerus' bride, Queen Vashti. She also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. The name Vashti means beloved one or desired one. The earthly king's bride throws a separate feast for the women of the kingdom. By contrast, the true king of king invites his bride, the church, that is, all followers of Jesus Christ, to his heavenly feast, which in Revelation chapter 19 is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is an opulent and lavish feast beyond our wildest imaginings. Charles Spurgeon says that Christ will celebrate this marriage supper, which will be the bringing of the people of God into the closest and happiest union with Christ their Lord in glory. Imagine what that will be like. Christ's bride 
his people will live forever and ever in the company of the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. There, the redeemed people of God will worship, honor, and glorify him forever. He alone is worthy of it all. The truth is, is that God alone deserves all worship, honor, and glory. What worldly object or desire competes for your heart's worship? What actions are you taking to honor God? What do the words of your mouth and the works of your hands do to glorify God? The great composer Johann Sebastian Bach dedicated his music to the glory of God. He declared that the final and aim and reason for all music was none other than the glory of God. Bach initialed his blank manuscripts before he began to compose with the initials JJ, which stood for Yezu Yuva, or Jesus Help. Or he would use the initials I and J, which stood for in nomine Jesu, or in the name of Jesus. When the manuscript was done, he signed it with the initials SDG, which stood for Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone the glory. Bach understood that in everything we do, God should be worshiped, honored, and glorified. He is worthy of all our praise. He alone is the exalted King of Kings. And we give God glory when we acknowledge him as the one who is worthy of all our worship, worthy of all honor. Our King, he deserves glory, desires glory, and is due glory. Have you caught a glimpse of his glory? Or is darkness, depression, and despair clouding your view? Maybe your heart is crying out right now, saying, Oh Lord, how long should I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Those are the words that were the heart cry of the prophet Habakkuk. He begged God to show him what he was doing for his long-suffering people. God replied to him saying, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Preaching on this passage, Billy Graham agreed with God. He said, if God today told us what he is doing, we wouldn't believe it. He continued, 
with this God-exalting, God-glorifying encouragement. He said, don't you think God has given up? God's abdicated. God's left the throne. He hasn't. He is still on the throne. And those of us who know him put our trust in him and him alone. I don't put my trust in Washington. I don't put my trust in the United Nations. I don't put my trust in myself. I don't put my trust in my money. I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when all the rest of it fails and crumbles and shatters, he'll be there. King of Kings will be there. Pastor Graham is right. He will. God alone rules and reigns as the true King of Kings, now and forevermore. Are you one of his kingdom people? Have you said yes to the proposal of the Lamb of God? If so, you belong to the King of Kings, and you will one day feast at his table. He is the one who melts all your clouds of sin and sadness. He drives the darkness of depression and despair away to fill his people with his light and joy. He gives us glimpses of his glory and he causes our hearts to sing Soli Deo Gloria to God alone the glory. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord God, you reign. You are majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, the wonder-working God. You put on strength as a belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. And we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Oh, help us, Holy Spirit, to live as your kingdom people, in awe of your glory, walking in obedience to your commands, and living, moving, and having our being in you and you alone. We pray for all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, the coming King, so that we might live always and only for the praise of your glory. Amen.